the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome once again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, right here on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Alan, the engineer, Dempsey, he's here, and Andrew Herdliska is our producer, and Ben Corson is our guest, he's in Medford, Oregon, founder of Hope Generation, and author of Optimisfits. I think I pronounced that right, didn't I, Ben? Amazingly, you pronounced it right, and most people don't their first try, so well done. Thank you. So what is an Optimisfit? Um, It's actually a lot like the name uh, you would assume it sounds like. It's Optimistic Misfits. Um, My brother-in-law actually came up with the title when I was trying to think of one word that would be a perfect summation of the content of the book. And so an optimist fit is somebody who's a nonconformist adventurer who lives with reckless abandon, childlike wonder, and unapologetic optimism. Uh, Because, you know, a lot of people, when they think of a rebel or somebody who's a misfit, they think of nihilism and destruction and what are we against. But an optimist fit is somebody who's rebelling against the hopelessness of the culture toward beauty, toward light, toward hope. So optimists. Uh, optimists are defined more by what we're for rather than what we're against. And uh, because antidepressants are, for example, now the number one best-selling prescribed pharmaceutical medication in our nation, which is built on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and yet we're stressed, depressed, distressed, and deeply in debt, um, we, need, we need an infusion of hope. And that's what Optimists is about. Igniting a Fierce Rebellion Against Hopelessness is the subtitle. Yes. Uh, uh, ben, I want to get in to a few of your perspectives that highlight your book. Uh, number one, a squad. What, 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 what's, what's up with a squad? Yeah, well, I really believe that your vibe attracts your tribe. And uh, if you want to go fast, you should go alone. But if you want to go far, you should go together. Um, I spent a lot of my life in isolation but a group of friends I like to call my squad took me from isolation to infiltration. And, uh, you know, a lot of people think, man, I want to disappear when what they really want is just to be found. And uh, I, I, I had uh, 10 years of chronic depression that was totally, you know, de- beating me and debilitating me. And then a group of friends pulled me out and uh, they, this squad of friends, of optimist that showed me a life of adventure, of fun. By myself, life was a philosophical problem, but with my friends, life became an adventure. So in this book, I like to encourage people to find their own squad, people who share their own characteristics that they can go on adventures with, because that's absolutely integral, germane, and essential to sucking all the morrow out of life and not leading a life of quiet desperation and putting to route all that is not life and making sure that we don't die with our songs still inside us. And in order to do that, a group of friends is essential. Here's a second perspective. Failure. Yes. 
failure is such a big, uh, such a big killer of hope. I mean, I know for me and, and uh, a lot of people listening, like we can all identify and stand in solidarity with failures. But what really encourages me is that some of the greatest Bible characters of history uh, were, were failures as well. So you have like Moses who had temper problems and Elijah who was moody and David actually killed one of his friends. Uh, Rahab in the Hall of Faith was a prostitute. Peter denied Jesus three times when a little girl peer pressured him. Gideon, the mighty uh, man of valor, hid in a wine from the Midianites. Um, and the same is true in history. Like Abraham Lincoln lost an embarrassing eight elections, couldn't get into law school, failed at business twice uh, before he became our 16th president, and he had a nervous breakdown. Winston Churchill failed sixth grade. Thomas Edison was told by his school teachers he was too stupid to learn anything. Beethoven was told by his music teacher he was a hopeless composer. Walt Disney was fired by a newspaper editor because he, and I quote, lacked imagination and had no good ideas. So really in history, we see it's not about how high you climb, it's about how high you bounce when you hit the bottom. Because as Churchill said, failure is not fatal. Success is not final. It's the courage to continue on. That counts. So even though we might fail, God's love never fails, and that's what gives us hope. Here's a third perspective, Ben. Strength. Strength. Yeah, there's this beautiful verse in the Bible where uh, Paul declares, when I am weak, then am I strong. And the reason that's not just mystical, but also practical, is because um, we're the average of the five people we spend the most time with. And you become like who you hang out with. We're like chameleons and cuttlefish. We blend into our environs and surroundings. So the, so the Bible says, if you walk with the wise, you'll become wise. So the weaker we are, the more we have to hang out with the strong for strength. And the more we hang out with God, who has a mighty and outstretched arm, the Bible says, the more his strength rubs off on us. And the more his strength rubs off on us, the mightier we become. So the weaker I am, the more I have to hang out with God. And the more I hang out with God, the more I become like him and his strength rubs off on me. Therefore, when I am weak, then am I strong. That's why um, we can own our oddness, our oddity is our commodity, our weaknesses is our strength, and our liabilities are often our assets. In fact, at the turn of the 20th century, this is really cool, Alfred Adler, uh, the psychologist, found that 70% of the art students that he studied had optical anomalies, and the greatest uh, composers of history, like Beethoven and Mozart, had ear degeneration. In other words, artists had um, defects and weaknesses in the very area that they were trying to perfect. And he said, you have to uh, put compensatory focus into the area of your greatest weakness, which then becomes your greatest asset. So in the case of artists, their weaknesses actually became their strength because they had to put more focus on developing the area of their weakness. So that's why I'm encouraged that when I'm weak, then am I strong, as Paul the Apostle said. Ben Corson is our guest. Optimus Fits is the name of his book. Here's the fourth perspective I want you to comment on, Ben. Dreams. Yeah, I'm a big believer in turning reality into a dreamality. Uh, the book of Psalm 37.4 says, If you delight yourself in the Lord, He will give you the desires of your heart. And so, if you're going to live as an optimist um, in a generation where people commit suicide literally once every 40 seconds, Suicide is one of the top 10 leading causes of death. There are 123 suicides per day in America. 
if we're going to live a life of rebellion against the hopelessness of our culture, then we've got to understand that we will have nightmares and we will have dreams, but we conquer our nightmares because of our dreams. And now let's get to a fifth perspective. And you talk about examples of optimist fits. G.K. Chesterton, Jordan McDonald, Billy Graham, Alexander the Great. I'm eager to hear about this one. Yeah, um, I love how you can look at optimist fits who even are just in the history books, like not, not even living people, because most of the main characters in my books are living, book, are living friends of mine. But these characters, like Alexander the Great, for example, he would walk among the mountains dreaming and seized by a longing. I mean, he had the hope that he could actually conquer the world, and he did so, most of the known world, by the age of 32. And he would bring a copy of the Iliad with him wherever he went, believing that he was the reincarnation of Achilles, the heroic uh, semi-divine character in, in uh, ancient days of yore. Or you look at like G.K. Chesterton, he would literally treat his umbrella like a sword, like he was brandishing a sword against an invisible enemy. Or you look at George MacDonald, who walked among the flowers and believed that uh, everything was mystical and magical. Like there were like, you know, little fairies and pixies hiding among the flowers and gnomes in the garden. Uh, you look at C.S. Lewis, who uh, had this wardrobe effect going on where he tried to show us the vision of the extraordinary and commonplace things and showing us that we're already in Narnia. So a lot of these characters live their lives with wonder. And uh, that's what a true optimist does. He goes through life seized by a longing, believing that everything is a miracle, that we've already passed through the wardrobe and that this is truly a miraculous universe uh, that is the temple for the living God. Ben Corson is our guest. He's in Medford, Oregon. His book is out, Optimist Fits. We've got another segment with Ben. Uh, stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We gather like this every weekend and always enjoy having you with us. And of course, we're on 94.9 FM and AM 950 The Word in Orlando. Ben Corson is the author of Optimisfits. He's with us. He's also the founder of Hope Generation. Tell us more about Hope Generation, Ben. Yeah, Hope Generation is something I started a few years ago uh, when a station in Washington asked to air my teaching, so we put it together into a show. Um, and then ultimately it became a radio show uh, that uh, spread across the nation uh, to 400 um, networks at one point or st uh, stations at one point. And then now uh, what it's morphed into is our TV show, which airs on 12 different networks uh, in 180 countries. Uh, it's a global TV show that, that we have now. And what Hope Generation is, is uh, it's a play on words. Um, to, a generation means creation. So for every individual who watches, we want it to be a hope generation to generate hope in their own heart. But it's also a collective phrase. And we want to turn our generation from the mope generation to a whole hope generation. So hope generation is uh, my outreach media ministry to get hope out to the nations. Ben, I want you to comment on this. 
that our generation, or the one right here now, may be the most depressed generation of all time. Does this frighten you about the future of our country? Well, that's, I think, honestly, the number one problem we're confronting today. And in fact, uh, the sociological data and research has literally confirmed that we're the most depressed generation ever. And I think a lot of that, in fact, this is also what the data has shown us, is because of social media. Um, And what we tend to do, we have a predisposition to compare our behind the scenes with other people's highlight reels at an interval of time when we're at the most boring lull in our own day. We'll watch the most exciting part of someone else's day. And this comparison is the thief of joy. And this juxtaposition creates in us a profound sense of sevenfold horror of midnight darkness in our head. And so it does definitely concern me. But at the same time, the reason I'm filled with such optimism for the future is because our generation, in sort of a meta way, is profoundly aware of how depressed we are. So when we realize we're sick, that's when we start looking for a cure and if you, I mean, if you found the cure to cancer or HIV, you'd shout the, the panacea and the penthe from the rooftops. And for me, that's why I just travel around every week sharing messages of hope, because I believe the answer is the God of hope, walking with, talking to, living for, depending upon, and leaning into the God of hope, as Paul titles God. That is the true solution, and that's what Optimist Fitz really delves into. I believe it is a cure to overcome depression because I've seen it firsthand in my own life. What do you say to Christians who struggle with feeling like an outcast or with depression? Yeah, I like to tell people, if you want to be number one, you have to be odd. So one is an odd number. If you feel like the odd ball, odd man, out, outcast, uh, remember Jesus said the last will be first, the least will be the greatest. And the misfits who changed history never fit in. Only those who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. So if you feel like you're insane, crazy, depressed, um, an outcast, you're in really good company because so were all the people who changed the world. Now, Ben, I want you to uh, dig into this topic for us. And that was the tough time about the death of your teen sister, a brother who almost died from brain tumors, and then you had a battle with depression. Uh, what was all? What was all that like? Yeah, I mean, there are times when you wake up in the morning and it's like you're pulling yourself out of nightmares, only to find there's no relief in the waking. And it's like your future is subsumed by an infinite gray. And uh, for for me, like even right now, my brother's been diagnosed with cancer and has only been given a few weeks left to live. And uh, when my sister died in a car accident and going through this decade of chronic depression, um, you, you, when, you're at, when you're at your worst, you don't want to live anymore. And that's why I even took up a knife to kill myself. I was suicidal. It was really, really bad. And um, I just want to encourage people. And I know how cliche this might sound, but it's true. You are not alone. There are people who will stand in solidarity with you. Um, this is not the end. Don't judge the rest of your life on this current season, because I know you might be going through crucifixion Black Friday, but Easter egg dying, bunny hopping, Jesus Christ resurrecting Easter Sunday is on the way. So everything's going to be okay in the end. So if it's not okay, it's not the end. And it's okay if you're not okay. It's just not okay if you stay that way. And so when God used that message of hope to pull me out of depression, 
I want to encourage other people that while not all things are good, all things work together for the good because truly God is good and he's going to pull them out of the miry pit too. Ben, what's your perspective on the self-obsessed culture we live in? Well, we live in such a unique age of history where anyone can be a star, you know? Um, did you know when we, when we post on social media, we become like the, the lead male lead or female lead in, our, in the cinema of our own life? And uh, what happens is when we post and get likes on our pictures, uh, the, dop- the dopamine loop in your brain is not only the same chemical that drugs induce, but it also is the same effect as when you gamble. So it's very addictive, like gambling or drugs. That's what the dopamine loop does in your brain when you get likes for your pictures because of the self-obsession. And that's why, like, for, for me personally, one of the solutions I found to overcoming the self-obsession in our culture is to every single day when we post, we're posting something about hope too, something to encourage people. So I would encourage our generation that self-obsession actually only exacerbates depression so when you're using and employing and deploying social media, don't just use it to impress people, use it to impact people, because Proverbs says, he who waters others will himself be watered. In other words, when you give encouragement, to, encouragement nourishment to others, that will actually feed your own soul and really benefit you when you're looking at how you can impact rather than just impress. I think this is an interesting topic, Ben, that I want you to expand on. And that is the difference between religion and relationship. Oh, yeah. That's something that is maybe the main theme of Optimists. A lot of people don't want to walk with God because they think that it entails a bunch of religion uh, and rules. But actually, the interesting thing that I try to point out about Jesus in the book is about how rebellious he was in his own context, in his times. like. For example, in Jesus' day, uh, you were not allowed to heal non-life-threatening diseases on the Sabbath. So seven times in four Gospels, that's exactly what he did, breaking the law. And that's why they plotted how they could kill him, because he was breaking their Sabbath laws and traditions. And so Jesus was crucified historically in part because he was rebellious against the system. And so, too, I want to encourage people that we do not have to live according to the religious system of our day. We can rebel against it have a relationship with God, because God is not after us fulfilling rules as much as he is after us enjoying a friendship with him, because the meaning of life is not to obey rules. Like, we don't play by anyone's rules. The meaning of life is to enjoy the joy of being enjoyed by God. And that's why Zephaniah says, God rejoices over you with joy. God doesn't endure you. He enjoys you. So it's not about religion. It's about relationship. It's not about rules. It's about friendship with the Almighty. Now, uh, Ben, let's um, get to this topic. You say that you are an official fun haver. Yes. Can you explain that? <laughs> what's 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 the story? Yeah, yeah. Um, I really believe in professional fun having. So one of the things that marks an optimist fit is like we'll read Dostoevsky, then skateboard. You know, we'll read Jack Kerouac, and then we'll go do flips off buildings into the ocean. Um, we'll, we'll go like four wheeling adventuring in a Jeep. And, uh, one of the big things for, for us is realizing that life is an adventure and, and it's not just about getting caught up in the, 
working 40 hours a week for 40 years to retire on 40% of your income and get your 401k, 2.5 kids, a dog named Spot, a white picket fence, and then claim your lot in the cemetery. Like that's not what life is about. Life is also about being a professional fun haver. The Bible says in the presence of God, there's fullness of joy. So when I describe myself as a self-proclaimed fun haver, I try to make sure that in my day, I'm having fun adventures with God and with squad embarking on a friend venture, because if we're going to live this life, we might as well make it an adventure. So what fun, what is fun to you? What, what are you, what are you uh, doing to have fun? Yeah. I mean, for me personally, this is what me and my buddies like to do the most. We love to skateboard, to longboard, uh, to even travel the world together as we're shooting for the TV show. Um, love to, even if it's simple things like playing volleyball with friends or really making sure that we don't get caught up in the stresses and anxieties of everyday life. Um, but, but going through like believing that fun is fundamental, that Jesus puts the fun back in funeral. Like he causes the dead to raise the lame to leap, the blind to see the mute, uh, the blind to see the mute to uh, speak, the deaf to hear. And if he, Jesus is living his life so adventurously, you know, walking on waves and, uh, going through life, raising from the dead and going atop mountains oftentimes. Like for, for us, for uh, God and squad and this group of optimists, we really believe in, uh, in living that adventurous life. And I'd say, honestly, the number one most fun thing that me and my friends like to do right now is to skateboard. Um, but everyone has their own thing that they like to do. And I just want to encourage them to live that life of fun because our generation is losing the sense of fun altogether as currently, and this is crazy, the suicide rate has increased by 25% nationally. It's a national crisis. So we got to do something about that by showing what a fun life really looks like. How do people find out more about your ministry and your books? Yeah, they can just go to my website at bencorson.com, um, and, uh, or you can just type Hope Generation into Google or into YouTube or Instagram. Um, and you can also order my book, Optimist Fits, uh, not only at my website, but also on Amazon.com as well. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about this message, and I just want people to be transformed by it. That's my goal. Can you tell us the story about how Jesus came into your heart? Yeah, well, when I was two years old, um, I heard my dad preaching a sermon, and uh, that's, when, that's when I really em- uh, embraced my faith, I, I mean, as much as a two-year-old can. <laughs> Uh, but then when I was 16 years old, I began teaching a Bible study with my friends and my buddies. And, uh, and at 18 years old, I became a pastor and, uh, and as a teenager started traveling around speaking. So I own my faith, I would say it too, but I started like bringing others into faith as well when I was a teenager. And that's, that's kind of the story of how it all started. How old are you now, Ben? I'm 31, but I act like I'm like 12. So, so I, I have a definite immature streak going on. Where does that high energy come from? That's a good question. I was actually wondering that myself the other day, and I have no idea, but this is what I do know. Um, I want to have enthusiasm because the word enthusiasm comes from two roots, en-theos, and en-theos literally means en in theos is where we get our word theology, God. So to be enthusiastic means you're in God. So, um, I don't want to just be a martyr who like goes to the fire for my teaching. I want to teach out of my own burning and live a life of passion and enthusiasm and excitement. So I guess the energy comes from God because 
I don't drink coffee, otherwise I'd be Tigger on steroids or something. Yeah, you'd be dangerous at that point. It would be dangerous. <laughs> what was it like writing your first book? Uh, well, actually, believe it or not, and not a lot of people believe me, I wrote the entire book on my iPhone. Did you? Because Yeah, because it was a book of rebellion. I'm like, I'm going to write this rebelliously and just haphazard and passionate and spontaneous. So I actually wrote it from an iPhone because I wanted to uh, do an act of rebellion against the conventional way of writing um, and uh, kind of be true to my own message of rebellion against culture and conformity and hopelessness. So, yeah. Well, Ben, I'm, uh, I'm really pleased that we could visit. What, what do you want people to take from our chat? What I want people to take from our conversation is that life is tough, but God is tougher. Life is a battle, but the battle belongs to the Lord. Um, sometimes you have to break before you shine because life is like a glow stick in that way. And your breakdown will be someone else's breakthrough. So I want to encourage you, you listeners, that if you're going through hell, you don't have to smell like smoke. You might be at your ropes end, but you're never at your hopes end. You might be knocked down, but you are not knocked out. You might lose a battle, but you're not going to lose the campaign. So you can just relax and sit back because every setback is a setup for a comeback. So live as an optimist. Live in an optimistic misfit kind of way where you're a nonconformist adventurer where you ignite a fierce rebellion against hopelessness, where you live with reckless abandon, childlike wonder, and unapologetic extreme optimism, because vanilla never changed the world, so we're going to be extreme hope dealers. That's what I want people to take away. Ben Corson has been our guest. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. This is 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Big Ben, you were good, bud. You were good. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. I had an absolute blast, and you're a very good interlocutor and interviewer, and you asked really probing and good questions, and just how you did it was really awesome. So thank you so much for having me on. Like, I really, really had fun talking and chatting with you. Great idea, Ben. Thanks a million. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much. We'll talk later. Have a good one, my friend. Okay, babe. Bye. <laughs> okay, bye. Ben Corson, author of Optimisfits, our guest in that first segment. Matt Roberts is here. He's in Ogden, Utah, founding and lead pastor of Genesis Project. But he began as a youth pastor in the inner cities of Tampa, Florida. Went to Southeastern University in Lakeland. So, Matt, welcome back to Florida. Matt? Yeah, thanks for having me. Matt, we're glad you're back in Florida. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me today. I appreciate it. The God of New Beginnings. Can you explain that? Yeah, so we, years ago, uh, 11 years ago, set out uh, to plant a church here in Utah, uh, that we really felt like God was calling us to start for people who don't do church, for people who were burnt out on uh, religion, maybe had been hurt or convinced that God uh, had quit on them or given up on them. And uh, when we planted that church with this dogged belief that 
um, no matter where we've been, no matter how things, how bad things get, uh, that we serve a God who always loves, always extends grace, and is always offering us a new beginning, no matter what. Well, let's dive into your book. It it uh, breaks into three parts. Part one, a God for messy people, and you write about anybody want to buy a strip club? Immersed in a messy world? Uh, fill us in on part one. Yeah, so a few years ago, uh, we had the opportunity um, with uh, a gentleman named Rob Coles, who was actually my youth pastor when I was a young man, who first led me to Jesus uh, as a teenager. Um, and an opportunity arose in northern Colorado that uh, Jesus had got uh, a hold of the life of a strip club owner there in Fort Collins, Colorado. And uh, he he began to really struggle with what he was doing for a living. It was a family business that had been uh, passed down to him and uh, really began to feel like God wanted to do something redemptive with his story as well as his business. And uh, after a lot of conversations and a lot of prayer, the Genesis Project had the opportunity to, to step in and to purchase that strip club, um, not only to raise uh, the money that it would take to buy the building, but also to raise a budget uh, in order to extend help and love to every dancer and bartender and bouncer that would be losing their job there. And uh, that was a launch of our second campus of the Genesis Project uh, that today uh, has led hundreds of people to Jesus. Many of those are the same people who used to be parishioners and, and dancers and workers there inside of that strip club. And we believe that uh, the, the story of incarnation, John chapter 1, verse 14, tells us that uh, the Word of God, Jesus Christ, became flesh and blood and dwelt among us. Uh, that the God of scientific perfection and order uh, became human and ran into our mess. He ran towards us, not away from us, when we were at our worst. And we believe that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that we have been called to follow him into the mess of our world. Jesus said over and over, I didn't come for the well. I didn't come for those who have their act together and have it all figured out, uh, which I think all of us could freely admit that doesn't include any of us, uh, that he came for us when we were at our worst, when we were broken, when we were the least of these. And we believe that's the call of the church. That's the call of being Christians, is to be a people who run into the messiness of our world instead of hiding away in church buildings and trying to separate ourselves from the hurt and pain of this world. Uh, something powerful happens when we become the hands and the feet of Jesus and choose to go to the very places that Jesus went in his world during his ministry. Let's go to uh, the second part of your book, What Redemption Looks Like. And you open with this topic, we pursue real relationships. Yeah, one of the things that we believe strongly is that the most effective conduit of the gospel uh, between one person to another is real relationships. That uh, relationships and true love are, are more powerful than the sermons we preach, which are hard, it's a hard thing for us preachers to admit sometimes. Uh, it's, it's more powerful than our church program, uh, than a worship service or set. Um, 
People experience the love of God through relationship, but unfortunately, sometimes what happens in, in the church world and in church culture is we have this tendency to only uh, hang out and love and be in relationship with people who are like us, uh, relationships that are comfortable, uh, relationships that, that don't stretch us. And one of the things that we contend is uh, that we should be a, a people who choose hard relationships and engage in those. And real relationships uh, are hard work. Uh, oftentimes they cost us more than we ever imagined, but what we know is is they are a fertile and effective ground for new life and new beginnings in Jesus to begin. Now let's go to We Open Up True Stories. That's the next topic. Yes, story uh, is a very sacred space. Uh, all of us have a story. Uh, all of us have have experienced life, and, and it's our story that sets us apart. And I believe we live in a world today in which we are hyper-focused on the things that divide us. Uh, we have so many dividing lines, so many walls that we have erected and built uh, between one another. And I think that story always has this powerful way of destroying our prejudices. Um, you know, oftentimes we struggle with, with our prejudices. We look at somebody and maybe we automatically are looking at them, the clothes they wear, uh, maybe tattoos that are on their body, uh, the way in which they carry themselves or talk. We assume we know their story, um, but it is uh, the the grace of truly sitting down and listening and hearing where someone has been and what someone has gone through um, that really is able to tear down those walls, destroy our prejudices, and bring us to a place of true love and true relationship. I love the story of Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, um, that he was able to really read her mail and, and call her out on a lot of the, the hurt and pain that was going on in her life. But instead of her feeling judged, uh, we found that she experienced love from Jesus. After that encounter, she ran back into the very town that she was likely trying to hide from that day and said, come and see the man who told me everything that I've ever done and, and there's something powerful that happens when we have no more secrets and we are still loved. And what an incredible place for us to engage in as the church, to be a people who listen and truly hear the story, the path, and the journey that someone has been on and uh, choose to introduce Jesus into the midst of that story. Now I want you to talk about we pull together safe communities. The church was created for community. And so many of the commands that we find uh, through the epistles and the call to the early church was how we do life together and um, to make sure that we create a place of safe community uh, where uh, real life, real relationships, and real stories can happen is absolutely crucial. And um, I believe that everyone in our world uh, longs to have a place that they belong. I mean, you watch sitcoms in the world today, and uh, everybody kind of has that place, whether that's a bar, whether that's a coffee shop, uh, whether that's a common place at work. We are all looking for that place where we belong, where everybody knows who we are and is there to walk with us. And uh, that is the power of the Church. We find that in uh, the conclusion of Acts chapter 2. Uh, that when the church came together, loved together, ate together, fellowship together, 
and learned what it was to do life as a a safe and real community, that is the fertile ground in which uh, Jesus could add to their number daily those who were being saved. Uh, the The power of the church happens in community and in doing life together. Now, I want you to talk about we get honest about sin. Uh, two years ago, I had one of the scariest encounters of my life. Um, we received the diagnosis that my wife, at uh, 38 years old, was diagnosed with cancer. Mm. And I can tell you in that moment, the last thing uh, that we needed was somebody to just flippantly tell us it was all going to be okay. Uh, we needed a physician, uh, a doctor to sit down and to get real with us. Uh, to tell us exactly what was going on, exactly what the threat was, and exactly how we were going to attack and to overcome that. And uh, I'm blessed to be able to tell you today that uh, my wife is cancer-free and was able to overcome that battle. Um, but it was the honesty we needed that, that really reminded me of what we read in the Book of Romans. The wages of sin is death. And we are surrounded by people who are sinking uh, in in the sin of this world around us. And sometimes it becomes popular in church for us to be a people who avoid the topic of sin, who who don't talk about it. But, man, we would contend that sometimes the the most loving relations, or the most loving conversations that we can ever have are conversations about the very things that are killing us. To not beat around the bush, but to get to the heart of the issue in, in a loving and gracious way. You know, the Bible tells us to be a people who operate in truth and love. And uh, we would contend that truth and love are best served together. That, that That is a powerful combination that we can go into our world and instead of ignoring the truth, to deal with it head on, but to do so with the capital of love and relationship behind us. Now, my guest, by the way, is Ben and Matt Roberts, co-author of the God of New Beginnings, we extend God's forgiveness and freedom. That's next, Matt. One of the things that we say often is the call of the gospel that tells us no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, no matter how bad we've messed up in our life, uh, that God is still there. Uh, Corey Ten Boom says that there is no pit too deep that he is not deeper still. And what a beautiful message uh, that we have been given to proclaim to this world uh, that no matter what, no matter the shame or the hurt or the burden that you carry, no matter how many wrong or bad decisions that you've made, that we have a Savior named Jesus who came for us when we were at our very worst. He didn't come for the best of us. And uh, that's good news to me. Uh, because I'm very rarely the best of, of me, but he came for the worst of me. And what an incredible job that we've been given as followers of Jesus to extend that good news, that gospel call of forgiveness in the beginning. We help reset lives and habits. I think sometimes we really hope that if we can lead someone to Jesus and pray a prayer with them and, and have this great culminating moment of faith in their life, that from that moment forward, everything is going to change and everything's going to be different. 
And, uh, you know, we know that when we come to Jesus, that's the beginning of a faith journey, not the end. Uh, that is the starting line, not the finish line. And I think most of us, when we first came to Jesus, had a, a lot of bad habits. We had a lot of uh, broken ways of thinking and acting and talking and being in our lives that needed to be changed. And uh, we really believe that it is so important for the Church to have uh, the attributes of patience and long-suffering to be able to walk with people and, and not expect. I think sometimes when the Church expects perfection of, of people, what we end up doing is just creating a really fake environment where everybody feels like they have to put on their Sunday best and has to pretend like everything's okay even when it's not. Um, but when we can deal head-on with the ongoing complications and struggles and temptations and sins of our life, and that becomes a rich environment for discipleship and growth to really happen. Uh, we've got to take a break. Matt, we'll be back. And then when we come back, I want you to get in topics like we deal with ongoing complications and we don't give up when setbacks occur. Perfect. Matt Roberts co-author of The God of New Beginnings, is our guest. He's in Ogden, Utah. You're listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's here on 94.9 FM and AM 950 The Word in Orlando. We do this show every weekend and always very pleased when you join us. More with Matt Roberts right after this. Matt Roberts is the co-author of The God of New Beginnings. The book is out. It's a good read. Interesting. And now, Matt, as advertised, we deal with ongoing complications. Yeah, to relationship is oftentimes a long road. Uh, It's oftentimes a hard road. Um, I think some of the nearest and dearest relationships in all of our life really requires us to walk uh, the long, hard road together, to to choose forgiveness, um, even when we don't feel like forgiving, to choose love um, over hate, to choose unity over estrangement is uh, the key to long-lasting and impactful gospel relationships. And, and we believe that when we can walk with people, even in their failings and even in their shortcomings, that we find the opportunity to to, to really walk that long road of, of success with people as they fix their eyes on Jesus. Now, we come to this topic. We don't give up when setbacks occur. I think we've all experienced... Um, the shame that comes when we let people down, when we make the wrong decisions, when uh, everything inside of us knew that we should go right, and instead we, we turned left. And one of the most powerful pictures of the gospel is a God who never quits and never gives up on us. And there is a power when we can exhibit those type of relationships in our life, when we can be a people that say, no matter what, uh, no matter what happens, no matter what mistakes you make, no matter what the shame and the fear inside of you are saying, that you have a, a, a safe 
relationship. You have uh, brothers and sisters that are going to walk with you uh, even through the hard things, even through the tough times, and they're never going to turn their back. They're never going to throw their hands up in the air. They're never going to come to the end of themselves and say, you know, I've given too much. Um, but to understand that um, that Jesus always runs to where we're at, always chooses to forgive, and is a beautiful model of steadfast, long-suffering and walking along with us uh, with this belief that uh, no matter what we're facing or going through, that he's going to get us to where he's called us to be. And, and what an incredible thing it is to have people who believe in you that much to put up with the worst of you. We share the victories is the next topic for you, Matt. To celebrate is uh, a key component of, of worship. It's a key component of who and what we've been called to be as followers of Jesus. And I think sometimes we, we have this tendency to really um, spend a lot of time on the hard things, a lot of time on the, on the bad things, and we forget to celebrate the small victories in our lives. Uh, we forget to celebrate the small things that happen all around us. Um, at our church, we've had the privilege uh, here in Utah of uh, baptizing over a 1,000 people over the last 10 years. And every time we do a baptism, we we're, sit that individual down in front of a camera and are able to record their testimony in a video that we share with our congregation. And it's something that really marks that occasion, that new beginning of baptism for them. And a, a few years ago, we had a gentleman that sat down in front of the camera with his wife. They were getting baptized together. And as she was sharing her testimony, she said, uh, you know, we have been in and out of jail and in and out of prison our entire life. But over the last two years, since we've come to the Genesis Project and been a part of this church, uh, we've both only been to jail once. And that's not that bad. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think to most of us, that maybe have never uh, never been in trouble with a law, never experienced those type of things. That doesn't sound like, sound like uh, anything to celebrate at all. Uh, but what we realize is that uh, there are so many reasons to celebrate as Jesus begins to reach people and to walk them out of the mess and the life that they've been in. And uh, that doesn't mean it's the end of the story, uh, but sometimes we have to stop in the middle of the story and throw a party and to celebrate together uh, the, the progress and the work that we can see God is doing in an individual's life. So we celebrate often and um, always make sure that those hard conversations are also coupled with the celebration of what God is doing. Matt, I've always wanted to ask someone this question. You head up a church in Ogden, Utah. What is that like? in the uh, the heart and the center of what we used to call the Mormon Church? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Utah is an interesting place. It's a unique culture. Um, one of the statistics that really drew my wife and I to move here over a decade ago was the fact that the Christian Church of Utah only represents uh, about 2% of our entire state. Really? And, mm. um, and still today, um, the LDS Church, or the Mormon Church, is uh, a very strong religious majority. Uh, in most counties, uh, our county included, that majority represents uh, somewhere between 75 and 80 percent of our community. 
Um, we actually have a Genesis Project campus in Provo, Utah, the home of Brigham Young University. And there in that county, the, the Mormon majority uh, represents close to 95% of, of their county, which uh, actually represents the largest religious majority in any county in the United States of America. And uh, one of the things that we found is that God hasn't called us to be a people who, who argue doctrine. Uh, because sometimes that's uh, a fool's errand in preaching and, and change lives. That once again, our call is to be engaged and involved in relationships and to elicit the question through our love and through our relationship, what's so different about these people? And uh, one of the things that is uh, true about the Mormon Church is it, uh, it is a religion that is built on works and mm-hmm. behavior, uh, really teaches uh, this idea that the, the better we are, the more we give, the more we serve, the more effectively that we are able to worship and to love God, then the higher status we receive when it comes to God. And that leaves a lot of people feeling like, man, I've gone through a divorce, and maybe maybe God's given up on me because I really failed in my life there. Or I'm struggling with addiction, and because of that addiction, I have no place in church and no place in a relationship with God. And for us, it is such good news that we live in a place where every day we are able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to to people who are hearing it for the very first time, that there is a God who doesn't love us based on merit, who doesn't love us because of what we have to offer. In fact, he, He came and He loved us when we were completely bankrupt and had nothing to offer, and that God invites us into His family. He invites us to his table, not as peasants to serve, but as sons and daughters to be adopted. And uh, we uh, relish the the privilege that we've been given to be able to preach that gospel and proclaim that message. And I think for some people to be able to write uh, the thinking of who God is and how God loves every day here in our community. Matt, In part three, you do a chapter called The Art of Spiritual Kintsugi. Did I pronounce it right? You did. You got it. What is that? What's that about? Yeah, so a kintsugi is actually an ancient Japanese art form. Um, Through Japanese families, there are uh, priceless tea sets, teapots, and cups. Uh, that are passed down, handed down from generation to generation. And as you can imagine, uh, those often get dropped over the hundreds of years that they're used, and they often break. And um, instead of seeing that brokenness like I would in my household, uh, my wife and I have, have four boys, three of them teenagers, so there's a lot of stuff that gets broken in our household. And typically... If we drop a plate in the middle of dinner, we sweep it up, throw it away, uh, and and try to remember to replace that the next time we're at Walmart. My guest has been Matt Roberts. Get his book that he co-authored, The God of New Beginnings. Uh, We've got to wrap up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. That's what you're listening to right here on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Matt, excuse the harsh ending. Oh, that's all right. But we drained that half hour, my friend. We drained it. Yeah. 
That was great. great. That was great. Great. So glad we could visit, Matt. Yeah. Yes, Pat, thank you so much. I sure do appreciate you uh, graciously hosting me today. Good. All the best to you. Folks, thanks for listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You heard Ben Corson in that first segment uh, talking about his book, Optimisfits. And then Matt Roberts plugged in from Ogden, Utah. And we talked about his book, The God of New Beginnings. Please visit my website. It's patwilliams.com, the Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat. And my new book is out. It's called Character Carved in Stone, an experience I had a couple of years ago at Army West Point. And uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Mike Krzyzewski. Uh, the Duke coach wrote the forward for us. So uh, go to Amazon, uh, barnesandnoble.com, easy ways to order books. We'll be back next weekend for the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Have a great week ahead. And just a reminder, this is 94.9 FM and AM 950, the word in Orlando, where faith comes by hearing. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.